This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Guy Goodwin-Gill, titled Reflections, Responses and Ruminations. Um, I cannot express how honoured I have been by these two days. The first bringing together nearly all of my former doctoral students, a, a gathering of doctors, a threatening of doctors, <laughs> um, The second, this day, no less a meeting of scholars who have provided us all, I think, with a, a stimulating, provocative and inspiring day, whether through papers, presentations, questions or comments. I also cannot sufficiently express my thanks to all of those who supported these days and who've supported me over the past years that I've been in Oxford. I'm particularly grateful to Jane, who of course is now co-authoring the Refugee International Law, Catherine and Ruby, as well as the staff at the Refugee Studies Centre and here at All Souls College. With masterly understatement, Volker referred to the present as a gloomy period. I was taken for a moment back to Winnie the Pooh. Now, the bear in the picture was not Winnie the Pooh. He was a bear of another provenance, but I'll spare you that story. But Winnie the Pooh, of course, features Eeyore, and Eeyore lives in a gloomy place, rather boggy and sad. And that riff in my mind led to a momentary lightening, a sort of tiggerish moment. I'm sorry if you're unfamiliar with Winnie the Pooh. Cultural specificity. But, like Leonard Cohen's optimism... Um, it was reality, unfortunately, that kept breaking in, and that reality told me of tear gas and rubber bullets on the border between Macedonia and Greece yesterday. It told me about Austria building concrete walls on its border with Italy. It told me about proposed legislative violations of the 1951 Convention, 1967 Protocol, in Austria again. And all because, all because Europe has failed, is failing, to to live up to its organisational principles, to its proclaimed values, even to its own law. And one typical example, before even getting into the asylum question of Europe's failure, it seems to me, is the fact that it allowed, as a collective, it allowed hundreds, thousands, to subsist in inhumane and degrading conditions at borders, along the routes, along the Balkan route to refuge and so-called reception centres, unfit for purpose, contrary to the Charter, contrary to the European Convention on Human Rights. It's not just a problem of numbers, either. And we've heard sufficient, I think, today, criticism of the common European asylum system, of the Dublin Convention, a common European asylum system built with a worthy architecture on what we've come to see are terribly shaky foundations, if indeed there are any foundations at all. And we've witnessed at first hand the failure of Dublin, the greater failure of Dublin, which reflects the absence of any willingness on the part of states to deal equitably, fairly, and as a community with the challenges of displacement. What's going on in Greece is not a Greek problem, it's a European challenge. 
What's going on in Turkey is also a European challenge. What's happening in Calais and Dunkirk, Mr Cameron, is not France's problem. It's all of our concern. It's a matter of common concern. But we have to, we've had to recognise those other political realities which are reflected in the, in the Visegrad group and beyond, which has, which have exposed and exploited the divisions which were papered over by the common European asylum system. Am I expected to dance? <laughs> I don't. And no matter the formal commitment of every member state to sincere cooperation, to solidarity, to fair sharing of responsibility, we have seen states stating quite openly that they will not pay the bill, that they will disregard those obligations that they had otherwise freely accepted. But then neither is this just a European problem, and nor is it a purely a refugee question. Um, what we need to see overall on the much wider scale, it seems to me, is an end to indifference to matters beyond national borders. I was reminded again of the Panglossian approach to see everything as being for the best and the best of all possible worlds. It's not like that, and we need to change things. These, the problems of displacement, are not self-solving problems in no small measure because states make sure they're not self-solving. They place obstacles commonly in the way of solutions. But neither are these challenges temporary in the sense of having a predictable, finite end. And it is a sad reflection, I think, upon the history of international law and organisation that refugee movements have always been seen as temporary. The agencies set up from 1921 onwards have always been temporary ad hoc agencies. And even when the UNHCR was placed in 2003 on a permanent footing until the refugee problem was solved, no other changes were made to its institutional uh, basis, to its funding, for example. Temporariness characterises politicians, bureaucrats' perception of forced displacement, and it leads to fatal consequences very often and to the failure of solutions. These challenges await, it seems, through the application of human energy, initiative, and imagination, and, of course, of scholarship, the sort of scholarship that I've been proud and privileged to listen to today and yesterday. The tools are there, as are the principles and the lessons from experience. That's been clearly confirmed, I think, today and yesterday. Now, I cannot hope to do justice. I know the title of my presentation says responses, but don't, don't hold your breath. Uh, I cannot expect to do justice to each contribution. Um, but what is impressive, I think, is, to me at least, are the, the linkages, the, the interactions, to, to borrow Jeff's words in another context, the interactions between different and disparate approaches. It is indeed a fine quilt that we have been witness to today. Jane, in her opening remarks, touched me, as you might expect, deeply. Um, I didn't realise quite how long I'd been at this business. Um, but she also recalled, and that was helpful for me again, a, a basic working premise that, as international lawyers, I think we all share, that law alone does not solve problems. It can facilitate solutions properly rooted in justice. It can also enable us to, to evaluate, as we've been doing just a moment ago, and judge measures taken in response to challenges. Uh, Jean-Francois raised the question mark, and I assured him it will stay there for the next edition. He raised the question mark, where 
do we locate, where should we locate both ethically and legally, our duty to those in distress and to those displaced? Well, while Helene took the, the question into the, the critically important field of collective obligation, she also reminded us of the temporary permanent dichotomy and the persistent insistence of European member states on an overly formalistic, individualised approach to asylum, which likely contributed in no small measure to the chaos and deprivation along the route to refuge in recent months. Such an approach contrasts, perhaps, with the uh, approach to disaster assistance, which, if I understood it correctly, if applied generally, could potentially put at risk an essential premise of protection, which is its individualised rights-centred aspect. And it was Walter's reference to multi-stakeholders which actually got me thinking, riffing perhaps somewhat irrelevantly, on those negative stakeholders with whom we also need to deal, those media, political and institutional interests which are keen to capitalise on fear and apprehension in pursuit of short-term goals rather than lasting solutions based on principle. Volker used certain keywords which struck a chord with me, predictable, equitable. And he dealt with responsibility sharing in that context, harking back to Helene's account of reception and assistance or diminishing assistance in the Middle East. But beyond that, it does seem to me that a robust regime of international protection in a relatively non-polarised world, by which I mean one where refugees no longer have political capital, no political value, uh, a robust regime of international protection needs to be matched by an equitable, and I stress that word again, an equitable regime of managed migration, i.e. one which looks to and promotes a facilitated environment rather than a strictly controlled environment. And together with that, as we've heard today as well, and we know too, there must be a sustained commitment to international development. Clearly this is not a matter for ministers of the interior alone, but for those who can and do look over the wall, which, parche Mr Trump, is not a wall and never can be. There is, though out there a scale inequality which we cannot ignore. Back in the 1990s, the International Labour Organization reckoned that we needed to create 30 to 40 million jobs a year for the next rest of that century if we were to enable those entering the workforce, those who are aged to enter the workforce, to find employment. Just last year, the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs published its population calculations and predictions, amongst which it noted that those in the 10 to 24 age group, those looking for work, will reach 2 billion by the year 2050. The ILO simultaneously published its report on youth unemployment, unemployment, underemployment, and employment at risk. These are challenges which likewise cannot be ignored or divorced from the broad subject of movement between states. But given what experience tells, tells us about the willful short-sightedness and political indifference of politicians, of states, perhaps of governments, we will surely be back very soon with Jeff, with Michelle and with Raza, each of whom gave full and ample support, more scholarship here, to the proposition that Raza expressed so simply and eloquently, that courts deliver rights, and they are an important, critically important part of the overall picture. And both Jeff and Michelle spoke to an issue uh, very much close to my heart when they, when they raised the dynamic dimension 
of international law and international refugee law in particular. It is exciting to work in this field, even as it offers opportunities both for progress and for regression. Michel also rightly stressed the international side to statelessness. This does not lie solely within the province of each individual state to determine whether or not someone is a citizen, for deprivation is an act that has actual or can have actual or potential impact on the rights and interests of other states and so cannot be kept within the narrow confines of state sovereignty. Um, for some reason, Jeff also reminded me that I've often said in the past, when I grow up, I'm not going to be a lawyer, um, to which the common reply has been, not much hope there, then. Finally, back to Europe. And thanks to Elspeth and Catherine, Europe, so much potential, so much waste. <laughs> Elspeth rightly stressed that whatever changes we do argue for, press for, advocate for, there must be no loss no displacement of debasement of basic protection principles. And I was pleased also to hear, to be reminded of, the, the coercive impact of Dublin joined with Eurodap. Uh, all is by no means well, even in that system. Outcomes, she stressed, they clearly are what we should be focusing on. And it does seem that ministers of the interior are perhaps the greatest obstacle to protection at the community level. I like Catherine's approach to safe country too. It was a reminder that there's nothing new under the sun, no depths which will not be plumbed if responsibility can be avoided. Somewhere, sometime, I wrote with respect to Dublin, just forget transfer, get on with it and take a decision. And I think that's still my position. Transfer has proven to be a prolonged process with serious, not just inconvenience, but damage to families and individuals. Just get on with it, take a decision. Harmonised outcomes, of course, do not, as we've seen, they do not emerge mechanistically from having directives here and directives there. But we do know from experience, and Canada can provide some good examples, as can other jurisdictions, that good refugee status determination on an individual basis, if we keep it, and I actually think we should go for the option of group approaches in certain circumstances, RSD requires a collegial approach premised on knowledge, on training, on values. So thank you. Thank you all for two days of learning, of, of being reminded, as one should, that there is generally at least one other perspective on the issue at hand. Uh, thank you for reminding me that I, Jane, that I once had slightly more hair. Thank you <laughs> for reminding me that doing international law is hard work, but it pays in rewards like this to meet so many good friends and so many good scholars. The international refugee law itself is a perpetual challenge, even as it is also seriously under-challenged. Thank you as well to the, the disciplines that have contributed so greatly to my own knowledge and hopefully also my understanding of the phenomenon of refugee and other migration. The historians, the sociologists, the political scientists, the international relations scholars, one of whom here today, Adam Roberts, is actually largely responsible for my coming back to Oxford in 1997. And thank you, of course, to lawyers, uh, lawyers national, international, practicing, practical, and academic. Thank you, too, to those working directly with refugees, to UNHCR. It is so good to see UNHCR here today and yesterday. Thank you to those of other international organizations whose work touches on my field of interest, and to those who've been working with NGOs, whose shared experiences remind us repeatedly and necessarily of the individual human dimension to the issues we debate, 
we mull over and occasionally despair about. But thank you to those refugees, too, who personally have touched our lives, and that was one of the great benefits I took out of my time with UNHCR was actually dealing with the refugee in person. Those refugees who have touched our lives have often brought home to us not just the, the realities of fear for life, of fear of insecurity, of fear for family, whether at home, whether in flight, in search of refuge, but who time and again have shown us the indomitability of the, of the human spirit, of that hope and that courage that still triumph over and through the sheer and utter desperation which drives the movement of people between states today as it has always done. And that surely is one of the very good reasons, one of the very good reasons that we engage in refugee studies and with international refugee law. So if we celebrate scholarship today and yesterday in such a fine series of papers, presentations, questions and comments, Let's also celebrate those refugees and migrants driven for want of protection to seek refuge, security, and a future for themselves and their families. And uh, let us remember too, as we turn the page and enter a new day, the many who did not make it and who will not make it without further effort by us all. Thank you.